0: That was not me in that video. (laughs) But we may do some jousting later if we need to here. Good to see everyone this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look together, begin as introduction to a series on the full armor of God, starting in verse 10, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Thinking yesterday, Alice and I had a major life moment yesterday. We took our oldest son to North Greenville University for orientation and uh, When we took him there, we realized that it was some 40 years some odd years ago that Alice and I both were at orientation at North Greenville and just considering that we were there again in the late 1900s just considering just considering that and thinking it through man just thinking about it yesterday how times have changed and just some 25 years of life moving and how things are completely different today than they were back then if you will in so many ways considering these things we live in a terrifying age in many ways i consider you know Microphone problems are the least of our problems. We have a world that has second guessed what we hold dear and taken things we know for sure and are absolutely clear to us and to God's word and made them to be not true in their minds. So thinking this through and considering it, yesterday at North Greenville, uh they did everything they can they could to make the moment really sappy, you know. You're giving your kid away. Let's hug and let's say one last word before you send them off. And let's talk about one thing. And as I was pulling Wiles to the side, just thinking, Allison, I prayed with him and I told him what I felt like was most important. Now, that's the question. What's most important for us? What do we need? What attribute, what thing in this day and age is most important for us to have? And we can consider all of those, our faith, our hope, our love, our patience, our peace. All of these things are absolutely important. And if you don't have those things, then you're not even a believer, the Scripture says. For those things come with faith and trust in Christ. But more than all of those, I think the most important thing needed by believers today is courage. It's courage. Notice something, if you will, in your Bibles. If you have them, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. When I was preaching on the Ten Commandments, this passage came up again. And I noticed something in this passage that I hadn't noticed before that really caught my attention. In Revelation 21, starting in verse 5, Jesus is speaking. He's on the throne seated. So get that image. Jesus on the throne seated there. And he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. If I could summarize the book of Revelation for you just real quickly, Jesus wins. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's on the throne. And he says to the one who conquers, so Jesus speaks this. He says to the one who conquers, you will have life remember what paul says in romans we are more than conquerors through christ jesus right and to the one who's in christ jesus and who conquers you will have life but he goes on to say something here in verse eight but as for the cowardly the faithless the detestable as for murderers the sexual sexually immoral sorcerers idolaters and all liars their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death Jesus is saying on the throne I'm the one who rules and reigns and I determine who conquers and who has life who is with me and who is cast to eternal death he's the one who determines all of these things and what does he say notice in verse 8 in verse 8 there the very first one he says will be in the lake of fire are the cowards isn't that something I noticed that for the first time thinking reading this that I was doing this and, and, and coming through he says that the lake of fire is reserved first and foremost for the cowardly for the cowardly wow the lake of fire is reserved for cowards and that tells me as we are in this day and age and in this time that tells me that courage is not only important to the Christian life it is vital And I believe it is vital more than ever. How does this work then? C.S. Lewis, who's writing a book called The Screwtape Letters, talking about how the devil tries to get at God's people, he says this, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form at every virtue at its testing point. In other words, courage is what makes faith work. Courage is what makes hope work. What good is faith? What good is faith in Jesus Christ if it's not there when it matters most? What good is hope if it's not there when we're most desperate and in despair? What good is peace if it's not there in our life when there is the greatest of turmoil? What good is faith if it's not there when it matters most? And what Lewis is saying is, we can have all of those things, but unless we have courage, our faith will fail, our hope will fail, all the other things will fail. It takes courage to live in this world and at this time. I might be crazy, but there's no reason I believe to us to not believe that in every way the devil wants to stop the Word of God. Even if it's our own nonsense of amplification Whatever it may be, if we can cause confusion, if something can happen to stop people from focusing in on who Jesus is and what he's done, then the devil wins. So let's focus even more intently as we understand that we as believers should never be cowards. We should never be cowards, for we have the full armor of God. And we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who has not only saved us and redeemed us, but holds us dear. We have one who is now causing, even in this moment, our hearts to be uplifted, our spirits to be raised, and us to know that we are more than conquerors when we are in him. So this morning, this will serve as an introduction of sorts. We're going to look at an overview of Ephesians, and we're going to see the driving doctrine of the book, and the reason why I can stand courageously as a believer in the midst of this world. We're going to see all of that just simply from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read this verse here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul is writing, coming to the end of the book, and he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's pray together. Father, by your grace and for your glory, we are here. And Father, we ask now that you would take this time and you would bless it, that you would use it, that you would uh, overcome whatever obstacles may be in the way in the hearts of people, whatever distractions may be there, Father, may your spirit, which is greater than all distractions, may your spirit that's greater than all of the enemy's charges or strategies. May your Spirit move and work even now in our hearts and in our lives so that, Father, we would be a people that are courageous for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, help us to look to your Word now and be strengthened by it. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we get to this passage, verse 10, he says, Finally, that finally is important. Paul is putting this passage at the end of his book. He's, he's putting it at the end. And so we need to take note that Paul is not just throwing random things out here in this letter to the Ephesians. He's building an argument, if he will. He's starting where he starts and he gets to the end. And here is what he wants to say to the Ephesians. All of these other things are building up to this point. And Paul says, finally... Finally we come to here. So it's important for us to recognize that you don't just pick scripture out of the Bible and take it out of the context and just think you can just see what it says, it fits within the whole. So if we look together back at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1, we'll find out some things about the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1, it says Paul writing this book an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. Paul obviously is the author, and the Ephesian believers are the audience. Paul was familiar with them. There are other letters Paul wrote where he had never seen or met those people, such as the Colossians, but this is not the case with the Ephesians. If you look back in Acts chapter 19, you find that Paul spent almost three years there with the Ephesians. He spent a great deal of time. He first goes, and when he gets there, he he had tried to go several times, but the Spirit stopped him until finally he gets there, and he begins to to bear witness of Christ in the synagogue, as was his practice. There, 12 men believed him and and started following his truth, and he baptized them, and they trusted in Christ, and he began to teach them. But the other Jews in the synagogue got a little upset and mad about this. But even the scriptures tell us that Paul goes around doing incredible uh, miraculous things and signs and wonders to attest to the message that he brought. And so there in Acts chapter 19, it tells us how some of the Jews tried to take advantage of this situation. There were these sons of Sceva. Sceva was a priest and he had seven sons and and they were ones that tried to perform exorcisms. Maybe they had seen Paul do this or they had tried this before and they just added Jesus onto their list. So then they run across this demon, this, this demon that's in this man and they try to perform the exorcism. And the demon speaks to him, and he says, I've heard about Paul, and I know who Jesus is, but I ain't got any idea who you are. And in the midst of this, in the midst of this, this man, this demon-powered man, turns on these sons of Sceva and beats them, it says, beats them and injures them, and they run through the town naked. And as they run through the town, everybody in the town sees it, and it becomes this great scandal. And so this becomes the talk of the town. And through this... Through this, attention comes to these, like Paul, who were speaking. And there was this one man named Demetrius, and Demetrius was a silversmith. The great goddess Artemis was the goddess of Ephesus. And Ephesus was a large city, one of the top three in the Roman Empire. And the temple that was for Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the, of the ancient world, this fabulous temple that's there in Ephesus. And so this was a major part of their conduct. This was a major part of, their, of their, um, their culture and their area and their place. And this silversmith had been making these little goddess statues, but nobody was buying them because of the effect of the gospel. Amen? Amen. And nobody had been buying these statues and it started to decrease his sales and his profits started going down. So he started a riot and they went after Paul. In other words, the Ephesians had come through all of this and they had seen the battles of the enemy. They had seen the the strategies of the devil, if you will. They had seen what it means to battle against those things and lose in the sons of Sceva. And they had seen what it means to have persecution come against the church and seek for them to, to fail over and over again. So the Ephesians were not unfamiliar with the strategies of the devil, if you will. They were not unfamiliar with spiritual warfare that had been going on. But Paul wasn't either. We find out that Paul is writing this letter while he's in prison. So Paul is in prison and he's writing back to these Ephesians, letting them know not only is he in prison, but the gospel keeps going because as he says in our passage, the gospel is not bound by chains it continues and so paul is familiar with the strategies of the evil one the ephesians are familiar with the strategies of the evil one and paul loves them there after paul had to flee in the middle of the night because of the riot he calls the ephesian elders back to himself and in ephesians chapter i mean acts chapter 20 we see his message to the ephesian elders one of the most beautiful passages in all of acts and there paul says this this little verse That means so much to me in Acts 20, 24, where he says, I do not count my life as valuable or precious at all, only that the gospel goes forth. Paul understood these things. He understood the warfare of the devil. The Ephesians understood the warfare of the enemy. They had battled through those things, so they were not unfamiliar with any of it. Paul was familiar. They were familiar. But not only that, it says that is he, in Ephesians 1, he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. Notice like all of, all of Paul's letters, all the other Paul letters that Paul wrote, notice here that Paul addresses them to the saints, to believers. Therefore, if you're going to read these letters in context, you have to understand that the truths contained in these letters are only for those who believe in Jesus Christ. It separates it out. He's he's only writing these for those who believe in Jesus, who trust in Jesus, who have given their faith to Christ. So this letter, these truths are for believers this morning, even as they were when Paul writes them. If you're an unbeliever today, you do not have access to the full armor of God, but you can believe today and find it. Paul is making that very clear. He's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus, talking about their geographic location, where they share the same culture, the same context, the same stories, the same history. He's writing to the saints who were in Ephesus in the same way he would write to the saints who were in Taylor, speaking to us, speaking to us geographically, located in a place with the same context, same stories, same culture. But more than that, he goes on. He says, to the saints who were in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. That faithful in Christ Jesus is important. In fact, I would argue that this is the the driving doctrine of the book of Ephesians. The driving, one of the most important doctrines in the New Testament, the doctrine of union with Christ. How the scriptures teach us that we are united with Christ. If you read the book of Ephesians, it goes through this. He starts in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. As you read this, you find out that all of our blessings are because we are in Christ. Our redemption is because we are in Christ. Our inheritance of heaven is because we are in Christ. Everything we have as believers is because we are founded in Christ. We are located, not just geographically in tailors, we are located in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. So when the Lord looks at us, He doesn't see Josh's past mistakes and failures and unrighteousness. When he looks at Josh, he sees the righteousness of Christ because I'm in Christ and covered by him. When he looks at me, he doesn't see my present failures. He looks at me, he sees the glory of Christ because I'm covered in him and my future is wrapped up in Christ. So when the Lord looks at me, he does not see the future that I rightly deserve. He sees the future that I have received by grace through Jesus Christ our Lord that is found in him. So in Christ becomes this driving point, Paul is saying. And not only do we have our blessing and our redemption and our inheritance, all of these things in Christ, also we have been joined together in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4, in Ephesians 4 he says that we are eager to maintain the unity in Christ Jesus as his body. Paul recognizes that as a people look around and we see so many different kinds and so many different places and so many different stories, there is never a way that we as a people would be able to attain to the unity that we can find in Christ. We could never find unity on our own, in our own power, in our own strength. God has given us that in Christ. We have been unified in Christ. So each of us who believes in him have been brought together in Christ, and we have been given a unity that cannot be lost in Christ. But we must maintain it. We can't attain it, Paul says, we maintain it. And we maintain this unity by loving one another, being patient with one another, caring for one another. We see that not only is Josh Powell in Christ, but all of those who believe in him are in Christ. So we join together for this work, in this place, for the glory of Christ Jesus. Whatever hope, whatever love, whatever faith, whatever peace, whatever joy, whatever patience you may have, is because you are in Christ Jesus jesus and if you do not have those things if you didn't have faith if you don't have love joy peace patience if you don't have those it's because you are not in christ it's in christ that we've received all of these things as charles spurgeon said the great preacher there is no joy in this world like union with christ the more we can feel it the happier we are the more you realize your absolute dependence upon jesus the more joy you will find in this world the more you realize that Christ is everything, the more you recognize that the things of this world fail in comparison, and you trust in the one who never fails. As another theologian has stated clearly, no saving good, no eternal good, no God-exalting good, no soul-satisfying good comes to us except as we are connected to Christ. Jesus himself teaches, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing, the driving doctrine the driving doctrine in the book of Ephesians for Paul is that his, God's people have been united in Christ and every blessing and every redemption and every inheritance is theirs in Jesus and they've been united together as a church in Christ and he has given them every gift and everything they possibly need as a church to shine boldly and brightly for the name of Jesus. Everything we have has been given to us In Christ. In Christ. So for us, as Paul goes through this, what he wants to make clear is not only all of your blessings and redemption and life and inheritance, everything has come to you in Christ. This goes for all of your battles too. In all of life, in every situation, Christ Jesus is our conqueror. If you read Ephesians chapter 1 with me, there in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul gives this incredibly long sentence. I don't even know where to find some punctuation to start, but I'm going to start here in verse 21. In verse 21, after stating that Jesus Christ is on the throne and he rules, he says that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, what Paul is saying is that in Christ, not only do we have all blessing and redemption and all life and everything we could hope for and long for, in Christ, we also are more than conquerors, as he tells to the the Romans. He says it because Christ has conquered. Jesus is seated there on the throne and every name that is named has to be submissive to him. Every person is submissive to him. Everything is submissive to him. All things are under his feet. Not only are his enemies not battling him face to face, they are placed under his feet. Paul says later that God's enemies, Christ's enemies have become a footstool to him. So not only are they battling him, he's already conquered them and now they are serving him as a footstool. He's turned his enemies into servants of himself, he said. They're a footstool to me. They're under his feet. He's trampled over them. He's won. Jesus has conquered. He's over all. There's not anyone that can approach his throne. There's not anyone that can approach his authority. There's not anyone that can come to him in their own power and their own strength without death immediately. No one can even enter into his presence unless he lets them. He is Lord of all. Every name. He's the name above every name. So Paul comes then to say that all of this lies in the background. When we say finally, what we must understand is that Paul recognizes to these Ephesians, I know you face spiritual battles. I know the devil is even after you. I know his schemes and plans are coming. We've had these experiences together. But I also know that you have everything you need to conquer the strategies of the enemy. I also know that in Christ Jesus, there's not one thing you lack, that all of your faith is there. All of your hope is there. All that you need is found in Christ. You have everything you need in him, for you are united with Christ. So what you need to do is be strong. Be strong in the Lord. What you need to do is have some courage, Paul says. Have some courage. It's all there. Here when he says in verse 10 of chapter 6, finally, be strong in the Lord. This be strong is an imperative, a command is telling you to do something. And and we probably give these out all the time. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Do something, you know, get up, clean your room, whatever it may be. And whenever we call them to do that, we're having, they have an action that they need to perform that they are capable to perform, right? And so what does Paul say? Paul says, be strong, but here, this is different. This is not an active imperative. This is a passive imperative, if you know what I mean. What I mean by that is this. This imperative is not calling you to do something. It's calling you to trust something. It's not calling you to action. It's calling you to trust. The Christian strength does not come from themselves. We need to know that we're not strong enough. Today, some of your issues in life and struggles may be from the fact that you're trying to fight the schemes of the devil in your own power and your own strength. And you need to know the scripture says you will always fail. You cannot battle against him in your own power. You cannot fight those things in your own strength. You do not have it in you. And by God's grace, what the scriptures teach us is that we are weak. He doesn't tell you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He doesn't tell you to figure it out, get more education. He doesn't tell you any of that. He tells you to trust in the one who has conquered. Be strong in the Lord. This imperative is more like be strengthened by Christ. Be made strong in him. It's calling us to recognize and remember that our strength comes not from ourselves, but from the one who's conquered and rules and reigns, who sits on the throne himself. And the power and strength that we must muster up to defeat the devil and all of his schemes, all of his attitudes comes not from us, but from the Lord. It's calling us to remember this. Be strong in the Lord. Be strengthened in the Lord. Who do you belong to? Remember who you rest in. Remember the one who has conquered, and you are his, and he is yours. Be strong in the Lord. Our courage lies not in our own strength, not in our own educated minds, not in our own prowess, not in our own schemes or strategies that we can come up with. Our courage lies in Jesus Christ himself. It's found in him. And we have every reason then we have every reason to be courageous. Look at what he says. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If I can, ask you to turn back with me to Ephesians 1. That long sentence there, starting in verse 16 of chapter 1, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He wants you to know what is the hope, what are the riches, and what is the power. And where does this power come to those who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, what Paul is saying here is the strength of his might has been greatly demonstrated for us. When we wonder, is Christ strong enough? Is he enough? Then we must remember what Christ did for us on the cross. There on the cross, what seemingly to the world was weakness. There on the cross, this great contradiction, if you will, where one is crucified, looking as if he is weak and has no power in himself. There on the cross, Jesus, who no one could take his life, but he willingly gave it up. There on the cross, Jesus conquers sin and he conquers death by taking it upon himself and putting sin to death and putting death to death. And there is no power left in it. And the reason why we are gathered here today, the reason why we are, in this place is because not only did he conquer death, but he demonstrated his power over all of it by being raised on the third day. The power of God in the resurrection. Look to the cross and the resurrection. The scriptures say, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, that if the resurrection didn't happen, were, we're a bunch of fools. But we've gathered in this place. We've joined together. Here this morning, we have come to worship and we've sang songs like I ran out of that grave, right? On that glorious day. We sing songs about the resurrection of our Savior who trampled the enemies through his cross. We sing praises to that. We gather in this place. Why? Because we know as a people, it is not foolish for us to place our faith and trust in the one who has conquered, rules, and reigns, and the one who sits on the throne and his demonstration for it all is through the resurrection that he has shown himself to be alive. We come today gathered in this place because Christ Jesus is alive. And the same power that conquered death, the same power that conquered sin, the same power that brought Jesus back to life and rose again, the same power that seats him on the throne, Paul says that same power is yours in Christ. You've got no reason to be scared. You've got no reason to be a coward. That's why I believe Jesus says cowards have a reserved place for themselves in hell in Revelation 21. But those who are courageous, those who recognize that in my own strength I can do nothing but Christ can do it all. Those who see that we depend not upon our strategies and our programs, but we depend upon the one who rules and reigns and sits on the throne and his plan is better than all of ours. Those of us who recognize that the devil has already been defeated, that his only desire now is to bring down as many people as he can with him and we are not going to let him bring us down for we stand before him courageous, not proclaiming our name, not calling on Paul, but like the demon said, I know Paul and I know Jesus. I ain't got any idea who you are. I don't care if the devil ever knows my name. What he will know from me is that Jesus Christ is Lord and King and he must answer to him. And so whatever weakness I may have, it's all the more glory to the King who rules and lives in me that I can say I will conquer through my weakness as I trust in the power of the King. I trust in him. We got every reason to be courageous. And Paul comes and he says, Here's where it is. Look to the one who died and conquered death. Look to the one who went to the cross and took your sin and put it to the end. Look to the one who rose again and is now seated. You are found in him. Be courageous. Be strong. And I think what the world needs more than anything is for us to be courageous and be strong. They may look at us and think we're silly. They may consider Christianity to be a crutch of just how to make it through everyday life. What they don't understand, the power of God to save our soul, to change our hearts, to transform us into the image of Christ, to to give us purpose and meaning in life, to call us out of that grave and us come up and say, we are here. They don't see that power in us. We must be courageous enough for them to see it, to live it in such a way that they know it. The power of Jesus has already proven itself to be sufficient to overcome whatever opposition may come its way. Now we must appropriate that power for ourselves. Take that power that we have in Christ and live for him. By faith, by faith, the first step for you is trusting in Jesus. Maybe that's the call for you this morning. Maybe the courage that you need is just by simply finally, for maybe the first time in your life, standing up and saying, I trust in Christ. You've been scared what people may think. You've been worried what people may do. You've been concerned about all of those things. That's exactly what the devil wants you to be. He wants to distract you from the only one who can save you and redeem you. And if he can just get you to wait a little bit longer and wait a little bit longer, maybe, hopefully, he can get you to wait till it's too late. But what you need is courage. Courage to stand up and say, Today is the day. I live for him who died and rose again for me. That's first. But there's always a step of courage for us, courage in how we live. Courage of being more bold in our witness. Courage of sharing the faith with the ones we know don't know him. Courage every day to stand for the truth when the truth is being attacked. All of us need to take this step of courage. And what you need to understand is that step of courage, every single one of them is met by the greater power of Christ. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That step of courage, everyone you take, you are met with the greater, greater power of Jesus. Do you trust in the one who sits on the throne? Do you have courage to proclaim him as Savior and Lord in your life? Not only is that what you need, that's what this world needs from us. And my prayer is that this church, the saints who are in Taylors, who are in Christ Jesus, will live with courage to proclaim the one and only King. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and your kindness. God, whatever distraction may be here, whatever may take away, God, from some trusting in you, I pray that you would remove that even now, that every single person will be lasered in upon Christ Jesus. And what is it you're calling us to do? And I pray, Father, whatever it is you're calling each and every person in this room to do through the power of your Spirit, they will have the courage to do it, to do it today. Father, if today is the day they need to take that step, an act of courage to step in front of this crowd and say, I'm following Jesus. May they have that courage in the name of Christ. Father, to join our church, to be a part of this, whatever courage is needed, God, I pray that you would help them take the next step. Maybe there's someone in their life they know they need to share the gospel with. Help them to be courageous, Father. Maybe there's some places they know they have to take a stand for truth. Help them to be courageous to be strong in the Lord. God, help us. Help us all to see our Savior dead on the cross, raised on the third day, and seated on the throne. And may that picture, Father, strengthen us with the power that is in us through the name of Jesus. All of this we ask in his name. Amen. Stand together and sing, I'll be here this morning. Whatever it is the Lord's calling you to do, I pray that you will do it with courage.